In your majesty, come down. In your mercy, Lord, come down upon us. Glory, self, in robes of grace. You are welcome in this place where the saints are gathered. St. James. I'm glad that you guys are here. Uh, welcome to everybody who's watching on the live stream too. Um, run through some notices real quick. I mean, you can read these for yourself. Everything is on for today. Schedule-wise, a youth uh, confirmation is right after this, and we're going to go to 1245. I know it says one. I forgot to change that in the bulletin, but we're going to go from, uh, uh, come pick your kids up at 1245. Uh, evening prayer tonight at 530. Come and uh, join Angela and I if you'd like. And then new members class from 6.30 day. Anybody's welcome to come to new members who wants to. Uh, it's a good group of people. You would like them if you want to come and uh, check out who's there and uh, start some relationships. Uh, one more thing that I want to say is that when you're leaving the sanctuary today, uh, on your left is the offering plate. That's the plate for our normal tithes and offerings. And on the right is an offering plate uh, for anybody who would like to donate to provide uh, networking, social time, get together for the faculty and staff at Metro East Lutheran High School. That's the plate that's on your right. So uh, just drop that uh, offering in there. And thanks for supporting that. We'll let you know uh, how much we got and uh, what we're able to do for them uh, here in a couple, uh, a week or so, whenever it gets tallied up. Okay, Pam, uh, Meister's gonna come and make an announcement about some mercy ministry things.
Um, in the bulletin, a new mercy ministry that we're going to be starting here at St. James. Um, it's our life ministries. And the purpose of the life ministry is to enhance the way we uh, support all life of all ages, especially the elderly and the unborn. And we're going to have a kickoff celebration on August 29th. We're going to start with a, um, a special speaker, Christy Hoffberg, and she has an amazing story to tell. It's full of redemption and hope. And we're going to also have um, some intera interactive activities for everyone in the narthex. We're going to have a booth. We're going to have some swag. And after the late service, we're going to have an old-fashioned cakewalk out um, underneath the trees. So um, please join us for all these activities. You'll have a chance to also give a voice about what you would like to see St. James do for life ministries. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to participate, give everyone an opportunity to participate in 40 Days for Life this fall. So we'll tell you more about that. And the second thing I wanted to bring your attention to is Youth for Life. Um, Youth for Life is a program that is going to encompass anybody who is of high school or college age in the entire Metro East. They don't have to be affiliated with a church or a youth group. It's not a youth group replacement. It's a fabulous program put on by Lutherans for Life, and it's sponsored by uh, the main sponsor is Katie Kylie Van, and I don't know if she's here um, today, but um, there's going to be a lot of activities. The first meeting is going to be at Metro East. You can see the um, date and times there. We're going to go to Washington, D.C. We're going to go to Chicago. We're also looking for adult helpers. I don't think anyone would be turned away from this effort, so see me if you need any more info. Please stand. Let's continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's pray and confess our sins to God. Almighty God, our Maker and Redeemer, we poor sinners confess unto you that we are by nature sinful and unclean, and that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Wherefore, we flee for refuge to your infinite mercy, seeking and imploring your grace for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. O most merciful God, who has given your only begotten Son to die for us, have mercy upon us, and for his sake grant us remission of all our sins. And by your Holy Spirit, increase in us true knowledge of you and of your will and true obedience to your word, to the end that by your grace, we may come to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from 1 John 2. I'm writing, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven on account of Jesus' name. Amen. Please stay standing for the first hymn.
from this morning uh, for this morning is Psalm 34 and it has to do with uh, the way God feeds us and especially the most important line is the line the first verse that you guys the congregation is going to say God feeds us but he feeds us with himself you open your hand you satisfy the desire of every living thing oh taste and see that the Lord is good blessed is the man who takes refuge in him oh fear the Lord you his saints for those who fear him have no lack the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. First Kings 19, Old Testament reading, also about eating. 
This is the story of Elijah. Elijah has just fought the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And uh, Elijah's scared. He's on the run. And God takes care of him. God takes care of his people. Uh, Ahab told Jezebel. So Ahab is the king of Israel. Jezebel's his wife. The prophets of Baal that ended up getting killed on Mount Carmel were working for Jezebel. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also, if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, so out of Ahab and Jezebel's reign, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough. Now, Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know what's interesting about that text, if you don't mind me like preaching a mini-sermon here, is that uh, Elijah's struggling. He feels like God's abandoned him. He feels like he's the only one. So what does he need? Like, how does God meet him where he's at? Does God say, hey, you remember that one portals of prayer you read? And it's super good. You know what, what, you know what God does? Is he gives him food and tells him to take a nap. And seriously, there's something about, this will be, this will be in the sermon this morning too. Like God's desire is to fix all of us physically. God's desire is not just to fix this up here or you know, our soul or whatever. God's desire is to fix the whole shebang. And when his servant's in trouble, God makes him food. Not like spiritual food. This isn't like some sort of metaphor for, you know, God meeting our needs when we're struggling. This is actually literal food God makes him. Epistle reading, Ephesians 4. Um, Just continuing on from where we have been reading through the lectionary the past few weeks in Ephesians. Paul says, This I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And here's what this means practically. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That's not the way an American would have written it. An American would have said, let the, le- let the thief learn to labor with his own hands so that he can uh, buy his own food. But Paul is not an American. Let the thief stop stealing, learn to labor with his own hands so that he can have to give to others. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone's seen the father, except he who is from God. He has seen the father. He's talking about himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the gospel of the Lord. You You may be seated. So, uh, been working through the lectionary uh, this Pentecost season through the Gospel of Mark. So we're uh, working through the Gospel of Mark. We hit the feeding of the 5,000 miracle, and then we hit Jesus walking on the water. And then the lectionary steps away from the Gospel of Mark for three weeks and goes to John chapter 6, where Jesus explains, he's having this conversation with people about the feeding miracle, and he explains what the feeding miracle means. And so starting last week and then this week and then next week, We're going to look at what Jesus says in John 6 and think about the miracle of feeding 5,000 and what that means for them and what it means for us. And there were some key questions that I kind of wanted to touch on. Last week we talked about what does it mean that Jesus is the bread of life? And I talked a little bit about Jesus being the one who is able to keep us alive, Jesus being the only true source of life. And then uh, this week I'd like to talk about what does the bread of life do and how can we get it? That's another key question. And then next week, um, not, not this week, but next week, I'd like to talk a little bit about what does any of this have to do with Holy Communion, if anything at all? Does any of what Jesus is saying about the bread of life and eating my flesh and, and whatnot, does it have anything to do with how we celebrate and what we believe about Holy Communion? And we'll do that next week. But this week, I want to talk about um, kind of, so Jesus is the bread of life. What's the goal? What's the plan? What's the, big, what, what's the point of Jesus? What's he trying to accomplish here? And then secondarily, how can we access that? How can what Jesus does be something that I participate in and that I benefit from? All right, so three things from this text I want to point out. Uh, One is uh, the plan of God, you know, basically God's plan for the bread of life, what the bread of life is supposed to accomplish. The plan of God, the power of God, how he accomplishes it, and then the people of God, how it applies to us. So first of all, the plan of God. I mean, this is real simple. Uh, the baseline of the plan is that Jesus is the living bread, right? Jesus is the bread of life. That's the key theme of this text. In case you miss it, Jesus says it three times. He says in verse uh, 35, I am the bread of life. He says it again down in verse 48, I am the bread of life. He says it again down in verse 51, I am the living bread, you know, literally the bread of life that came down from heaven. So Jesus is the bread of life. We talked about that last week. Why... Why did God send Jesus to be the bread of life, though? What's the plan? How, how does the bread of life, what's the bread of life supposed to do? So first of all, let's talk about what's not the plan. Common, misconception, common misconceptions about what Jesus is supposed to do. And 
I have to tread lightly here because I don't want to offend anybody. But first of all, uh, the point of the bread of life is not good theology. Jesus did not come to give us good theology. I think that good theology is good, and you should have good theology. Good theology is, is good, and bad theology is bad, but it's not the main point. And people who attend churches like St. James Lutheran Church sometimes tend to fall in the category of thinking that the main point is thinking right thoughts about Jesus and God and the Bible and the world, and that's not the main point. Now, you're not going to get to the main point if you're thinking wrong thoughts, and so good theology is essential, but it's not the end. It's a means. It's a step on the path to the end. Good theology is not the main point. Jesus did not come so that you and I could have good theology. Powerful worship experiences, also super helpful. And I hope that all of us are having powerful worship experiences. Uh, corporately or in community group or in your private devotional life, I hope that you're having experiences where you meet with Jesus in ways that, you, that all of you experience, your mind and your emotions and your body. But again, that's not the main point. For many churches, that's the main point. And it's not. I told the Bible study I was going to say this one here. I'm, I'll say it to you too. I apologize for always saying this. But it's the kind of thing that like, keeps on popping up and so I feel like I have to keep on saying it. The main point is not, the main point of Jesus is not to get you to heaven when you die. That is not why Jesus came. In fact, Jesus hardly ever talks about taking us to heaven when we die. One time and then obliquely, thief on the cross, Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Certainly not unpacking a theology of what it means to go to heaven. Jesus is largely uninterested in what happens to your soul after your body dies. Now, all that to say that as a Christian, I believe that the Bible teaches, even if it's just a tiny bit, even if it's, Paul only mentions it two times and Jesus wants, that when your body dies, your soul, if you're a Christian, goes to be with Jesus and is safe with him. But that is not the main point. That is not why the bread of life came. Why did the bread of life come? The answer is so that we wouldn't die. That's what he says down here in verse uh, uh, um, 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. You know, they're asking for, give us more manna. Back in the reading from last week, they say to Jesus, give us manna. And Jesus says, well, your fathers had manna and what happened to them? They died. If you eat this bread, you will never die. Look, this is the goal. This is why Jesus came. This is why he's the living bread. So that you would live forever. So that your body would live forever. That's the goal. Look, all the other things in life that are good, there is an expiration date on them. And you, we're all aware of it. Sometimes more or less. At different parts in our life, we don't think about it at all. And then sometimes we think about it. It's like, it's, it's like a heavy blanket on top of us. Or, 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 or a fog in the room that we can't see past. We all know that our lives are slowly circling the drain. It, you can take care of your kids, and you should take care of your kids. But eventually, you're not going to be able to take care of your kids because you're going to be dead. You should love your neighbor. But eventually, you're not going to be able to love your neighbor because eventually you're going to die. Death ends all of us. You want a powerful experience of God? Israel had that in the wilderness. They had bread raining on their heads from heaven, and they ended up dying. And when Jesus comes, he comes so that we'll never die. He wants to fix it so that your body will live forever. And there's two ways he gets at this here. The first of all is in the last line, this crazy verse that we're going to unpack next week. 
I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I am coming to you, and it's my flesh. The most commentators I read said, well, he's kind of... Um, He's kind of pointing us forward to his death on the cross. So he brings up his flesh now so that we're thinking about it then. That's totally true. So much of this has to do with Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead. But that's not enough. It's actually much larger than that. It actually is important that God took on flesh, that God has a body. You know why God has a body? Because your body is important to him. And the problem needs the proper solution. The problem needs the proper solution. Like, so if you're building a house and you have like wiring problem, you don't call an English teacher, right? You call an electrician. Like, if you want to learn tennis, you don't call me. You call a tennis pro. Why? Because the problem that you have, I'm not very good at tennis, needs the proper solution. Tennis pro, come and help you. Here's my problem. You know what my problem is as a human being? I, I, could, I could be super general and say, I'm a center, right? But it's actually, it's, that's not specific enough. The problem is, is everything about me is broken. The problem is, is that my mind is twisted. The problem with my mind is that you say nice things to me and I assume that you're trying to get something or I assume that you're trying to like manipulate me somehow. The problem, that's my physical mind, right? I mean, I know there's a part of me that's much bigger than like the physical mind, but my physical mind certainly has twisted thought patterns. You know, the problem with my mouth is that I'm constantly like antagonizing my wife and my kids. That I'm constantly saying pretty things to you guys so that you'll like me that I don't really mean. But because it makes me feel good that people like me or because I need something from you and I'm trying to manipulate you, that's my mouth. Now I know that there's like a broken will and broken emotions and broken thoughts behind that, but I'm using my physical mouth. I, my body's in big trouble. Like my body, my mind, my emotions which are, I know they're bigger than just chemicals flowing, but they're also chemicals flowing. It's all messed up and screwed up. And on top of that, every, every time I breathe, it's one less breath that I'm going to get in this life. I'm, I'm increasingly getting closer to dying each moment that I live. What do I need? What does my body need? Do I need Jesus to come and give me lessons for living so that I can have comforting things to think about? Or... Uh, just another dash of good theology to stow away in my head. I, I, there's, good theology is great. Comfort is great. But what I need is somebody to come and fix my body. I need somebody to come and repair what's screwed up about me. That's why Jesus says, I'm here in the flesh. Like I'm, not like, I'm not here to give you like spiritual motivation or like psychological comfort. All that will happen. But I'm here. God makes himself permanently human to fix me. More on that next week when we talk about Holy Communion. That's the first thing he does. Here's the second thing. I told you there's only one time that Jesus obliquely refers as going to heaven when you die. Can anybody read this text here and find anything he says about going to heaven when you die in this text? I'm the bread from heaven that came to take you, up to, to take you back up to heaven someday while your body rises. He doesn't say anything like that. You know what he does say though? Three times. Three times he says this. Check this out. Verse 39. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. What's, what's the goal? 
Jesus is going to raise your body up on the last day. In case you missed it, very next verse, verse 40. This is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, not take him to heaven when he dies, raise him up on the last day in case you missed that one. He says it again in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is being even more redundant than I've been. He has come to raise up our bodies on the last day. Jesus' goal is to fix everything. Every single thing that's wrong with my body, every single thing that's wrong with your body, every single thing that's wrong with the relationship that exists between our bodies, every single thing that's wrong with this environment, Jesus is going to undo it and make it good again. That's his goal. Forget the whole going to heaven when you die. That's weak sauce. We want things fixed. Now, somebody asked me the other day, it's actually uh, uh, Chuck Rather, who wasn't here this morning, but we were working on one of our podcasts, and he said to me, like, but don't you think like somebody... Like somebody who's like, imagine somebody who's like really, really elderly and like they're sick and they're terminally ill and like, they're like, I just want to go home and be with Jesus. Like they really want to go to heaven though, right? And I was like, I said, yeah, that's true. They do. But you know what they really, really want? What they really, they would like to be away from the pain, but what their heart deeply craves is to be young again, is to go back when their body worked to go back when their family was all together, to go back when they can decide, I'm going to go out and play some golf and they can do it. You know what they're craving? That, that, that will never come again in this age, but you know what they're really craving? The new creation. When they're young again and their body works and they can go out and play golf whenever they want and everybody's back together again. That's what they're craving. That's what you're craving. And the good news is that that's what Jesus is offering. That's his plan. Now, how does he do it? The power of God. How does this salvation happen? There's basically two answers here which are going to smell to you like they're mutually contradictory, but they're not. The first answer is this. It happens by the will of the Father. Look at verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me. Jesus says, this is the will of my Father, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. What does this verse mean? This, this verse means this, is that God has planned, those of you who are Christians, God has planned that out and has from before, long before you were born and has taken you and has given you to Jesus, and now Jesus is holding on to you, and you can never be lost. That's what that means. It is the will of God that you are a Christian. I don't mean the will of God in the sense that, like, it's something God wants you to do. I mean it's the will of God in the sense that God desired it, and then God made it happen. That's what that verse, I don't know of any other way to make that verse mean anything other than that. Verse 44, he says something very similar. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Do you know why you came to Jesus? Because God drew you here. Because God, by his sovereign and loving will, pulled you to himself and made you his child. This is not something that you decided to do. It's not something that you, more on that in a minute. This is not something that's dependent upon you're really, really, really believing it. This is something that God really believes. This is something that God desires to do. This is something that God chose. Now, some of you are very comfortable with this. I, I know you are. Some of you, some of you remember your youth confirmation days, and you remember Luther's small catechism. Does everybody remember? Uh, quote it with me if you can. I'm just kidding. You don't need to do that. Uh, the uh, uh, the uh, Luther's small catechism on the third article, remember what Luther says? I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But the Holy Spirit's called me and enlightened me with his gifts and sanctified and kept me in the true faith. Like, I can't by my own brain, I can't 
I can't figure Christianity out. It's not like, well, I was the smart guy in the room and I was like, oh yeah, Jesus, he's like the, like the great quadratic formula and I just solved it and now I'm a Christian. It has nothing to do with being smart. It has nothing to do with being strong. It has to do with the will of the Father who draws, him, draws you to himself and gives you to his son who holds you in his hand forever. Now, uh, like I said, some of you are very comfortable with this notion. Some of you not so comfortable with this notion. Let me run through, for those of you who, for, for, for whom this notion is new, let me run through some common objections that might be going through your mind real quick. And I don't want to waste a bunch of time because I know a lot of you are already on board with the notion of predestination and election and that our salvation depends upon God's sovereign and gracious choice. But for those of you who aren't on board or you're not familiar with it, let me run through some common objections. First of all, it's not fair. It's not fair because it takes away free choice from people. This is a common objection. Uh, let me just say before we get into this, that much of that objection is based upon an enlightenment. This is white person notion, 200 years old. Enlightenment presupposition that free choice and autonomy is the thing that gives humans value. Right? This is why, so uh, you know, P Pam talked about pro-life ministries. This is one of the reasons why um, uh, life, the life of the unborn and the life of the elderly is extremely challenged in our culture. The reason, one of the main reasons, the cultural reason is this, is because we don't value life unless it can make its own choice and unless it's productive. And the unborn don't make their own choices. They don't have autonomy and they're not productive. The elderly can't, frequently can't make their own, own choices and they're not productive. Prisoners can't make their own choices and, and they're not productive. This is the reason why the pro-life movement is so important because it pulls us out of our enlightenment mindset that free choice is the sweetest treat you can have Back to a more biblical mindset of like God's sovereign will is the sweetest treat that you can have. But anyway, it's not, there's a, a, a PSA right there. It's not fair. It's not fair, right? First of all, like, okay, but this assumes that like humans are capable of making free sovereign choices that are beneficial to themselves. But, but the Bible always describes us as the type of people who aren't able to make those kind of choices that are beneficial to ourselves. The Bible describes us as infants. The Bible describes us as dead in our trespasses and sins. The Bible describes us as lost sheep. These are the kind of people that can't make their own choices. And when they insist that they're going to, they're damaging to themselves. There's a famous story in my family. I might have mentioned this in here before. But we were talking about it the other night. Uh, when Kate, my daughter Kate, was uh, four-ish, I think, three or four, we were all out in uh, Long Beach, California, vis visiting my sister who lives out there. And the Queen Mary, the ocean liner, the 1920s ocean liner Queen Mary is in Long Beach. It's, just, it's a museum ship now, and it's a hotel, and you can go and you can visit there. And it's really interesting. And we were on the Queen Mary. We were up on the highest deck, the boat deck. And so it's, it's a big ship. It's bigger than the Titanic, if that gives you any sort of like frame of reference. And Kate was four, and there's these railings that go around, of course, and they're about yay high on me, like here, and there's like three rails. And we're walking around, and we looked over, and Kate is standing on the second to the top rail with the top, the very most top rail, like just below her knees, kind of hanging out over, you know, 100 feet over the water. And we, we all reacted in different ways, you know, like Harry, who was about five, like yelled and then flattened himself down on the deck, like, like that's what I wanted to do. I'm scared to death of heights. But I like ran over and grabbed her. I violated her free sovereign will. I took away her free choice. Why? Because she has no fear. She still doesn't. Her free choice was going to lead to her death. 
and I took away her free choice out of love. In a sense, that's not fair. But if we're going to say it's not fair, we've got to say it's not fair in the good way. Right? So if your kid's running around in the street, would you be like, I, I just can't, you know, that's what his heart deeply wants to do. It'd be, it would be wrong of me. It would be so wrong of me to deny him the freedom of playing where he wants to play. No, like, you, you would end up in jail if you did that. You go out and you grab the kid, and then you start to talk to him about, like, how to make better choices. That's, that's valid, right? We're going to talk about choice in just a minute, uh, how, we make, how we can make good choices in just a minute. But certainly, if you and I are going to survive, if we're going to escape the mess that we've gotten ourselves into, we need God to violate our wills so that he can do his own will. That's what Jesus means here. Second objection. Well, so first of all, let me say something about violating wills here, because this is a, a, a good quote that I want to pick. We all, we all sort of feel like, especially those of you who came to, uh, came to Christianity as an adult, a lot of us feel like, but I did choose Jesus. And I want to say, you did. You did choose Jesus. But you chose Jesus because he was choosing. There's this hymn in the hymn book that we've never sung here. And I actually don't even really know the tune, but the title's really good. It's uh, not that I, it's, how does it go? It's not that you chose me, but it's I chose thee. I'll look it up. I just totally botched it. But the, but the whole point of that is like when you, cho- when you choose Jesus, he's actually choosing behind and through you. This is what Jesus is saying. You're coming to me, yes, but it's because my Father is drawing you and pulling you to me. All right. So this great quote by C.S. Lewis, who was talking about his own conversion as an adult from atheism to Christianity. And he's reflecting on that in his book, Surprised by Joy. And he says this, amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God, like we're all sort of searching for ultimate reality in God. And it's easy if you're an agnostic to talk about, like, I'm searching for God. Lewis says this, though, to me, as I then was, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. So he's saying, like, it's actually the cat that's after the mouse, right? And like, I wasn't searching for the cat. Lewis, Lewis would say he was the most reluctant convert in Britain. Like, God's there. He's chasing you down. He's the hound of heaven. He's going to get who he wants to get. Okay, second, second objection. It's going to make Christians arrogant because they'll feel like they're better than everyone else. We're the chosen ones, right? First of all, uh, Christians are definitely arrogant. Like, this is definitely a problem. Like, when I teach, so I teach, uh, uh, I teach comparable religion at Lewis and Clark, and I hope nobody in there has ever been a student, because I'm not thinking about you, I promise. Um, whenever I get a student who comes up and says to me at the beginning of class, hey, I'm really excited about this because I'm a really serious Christian and I'm really excited about this class, there's part of me that's like, oh, Jesus, please no. These people always mess me up, because these are the people that always end up, like, yelling at the people who disagree with them. And I, I, I'll tell you the honest truth. Like, and this doesn't have anything to do with my sermon. Like, frequently in my class, the agnostics and atheists are way nicer than the Christians. The Christians are jerks. And so this is sort of a deserved reputation. Christians can be arrogant. We are definitely arrogant. But it is not because of the grace of God and Jesus Christ. If Christians really understood that it's not by my own reason or strength that I'm a Christian, I've got nothing to be proud of. Like, in fact, it's actually the opposite, right? First Corinthians 1, God has chosen the dumb people and the weak people of the world to draw to himself. Like, I, it actually should make me more humble that I'm a Christian. I should walk around in, in this world and be like, everybody here is better than me and smarter than me. Like, God, thank you for saving me and help me share your love with these people. It should never be the grace of God that makes us more arrogant. We did nothing to deserve being a Christian. It's just his love. Third, 
This is an old school one. It will keep you from evangelizing if you really believe that, if, if you really believe that, that God draws people and that's how people come to faith. It will keep you from evangelizing. Actually, though, this actually made me, when I first uh, realized this, it made me a way better way better at talking about the gospel with people than before. Like, I, I grew up in an independent fundamental Baptist church, and so like, we would go out like, and knock on doors and cold call people and say, hey, if you died right now, do you know if Jesus would let you into his heaven or not? That sort of thing. And I'm, not, I'm totally not saying there's no value to that, but I hated it. I hated it. And like, I had to do it, right? And if I don't do it, nobody's going to do it, and it's going to be my fault that people don't become Christians. But when I learned that God had actually was creating this family and pulling people into his family on his own, it completely liberated me to be like, I can talk to Jesus about anybody. And if they don't believe what I'm saying, like I don't have to take it personally because it's not me, but some of them are going to believe what I'm saying because God does have his people, and by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, he is making those people his own people. It actually made me better at evangelism. This is the power of God. Let me just sum up this and we'll move on to the last point real quick. The power of God is that he is the one with the power. He's the one who creates his people. He's the one who creates his church. He's the one who's called us, again, with Luther, not by our own reason or strength. He's called us by his gospel, enlightened us with his gifts, and sanctified and kept us in the true faith. Okay, finally, how should we as God's people respond to his sovereign grace? And the way that this text describes it is this. We're to, we are to be people who come to Jesus and trust Jesus as our identity, as the people who've been saved by him. We come to Jesus and we trust in him because he has saved us. We don't come to Jesus and trust him so that he will save us. We come to Jesus and trust in him because he has saved us. You can't believe in Jesus. We talk about being saved by faith, and there's an appropriate way to talk about that. What it doesn't mean is this, is that I have faith and so Jesus has to save me. Faith is a gift, Ephesians 2 insists, which means that when you do have faith, it means you've already been saved. By the time you have faith in Jesus Christ, you've already been converted. You already are a child of his. We are to be people who trust Jesus, which means we are to be people who trust him for his way of being human and not our way of being human. Now, does this, it sounds like, so how do these two go together? Like that the work is all God's, that God is the one who chooses us and draws us to himself, and yet at the same time, we have to come to him and believe in him. I actually don't really have a great way of putting that together to you, for, for you math-wise, except for the Bible always consistently insists that both of those things are true. It's what D.A. Carson calls compatibilism. This notion that salvation is 100% God's sovereign free choice of us. But it also includes 100% of our free choice of him. That's not the cause. The cause is his free choice of us. But it never is like, I don't really believe in Jesus, but he's forcing me to. It's always we come to him. Look at, how, look at how Jesus describes it in this text. Verse 37. I know I've already read some of these before. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. See those two things? Everyone that the Father gives to Jesus will come to him. But whoever comes to Jesus will not be cast out. We're not saying that the, there is no such thing as a person in the world who comes to Jesus and Jesus says, I didn't draw you. Go away. Whoever comes to Jesus will never be cast out. And these two things go together. These two things go together in the story. Verses 39 and 40. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. In other words, it's not their choice, it's my choice. I'm not losing them. I'm keeping them and raising them up on the last day. 
4, verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus still insists that you must believe on, on Him in order to be saved. It's, an, it's a totally appropriate response if somebody says, what must I do to be saved? To say, you have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Totally appropriate biblical response. Verses 44 through 46, actually just do 44. 45 and 46 are interesting. I don't have time to talk about those, but ask me about them afterwards if you want to. The whole bit about being taught by God and that no one's seen uh, the Father except he is from God. It looks, if you just read it, it looks kind of like a, kind of a throw-in. It's not. It's super important to the argument. I just don't have time to do it. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Uh, verse 47, jump down to 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Both of these things are true. So those who, believe to be, those who belong to Jesus are marked by their trust and their faith in him. One last way of getting at this, and then I'll be done. Look at verse 43. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. These are, these are the, uh, the uh, Jewish leaders who are complaining about him, and Jesus says, don't grumble among yourselves. That's kind of a weird word, isn't it, to use? Don't grumble. Stop grumbling. It's kind of an old-fashioned kind of old word. Uh, why does Jesus say this? Uh, for those of you who know your Old Testament, you'll know that the most famous place where grumbling happens is with the people of Israel in the wilderness. Do you remember that? They're walking through the wilderness, and Moses and Aaron, Moses is constantly calling them on the carpet for grumbling against God. Why did you bring us out here to die in this wilderness? We remember the Old Testament reading last week? We wish we were by the meat pots again back in Egypt. Quit grumbling, Moses says. God is angry because you're grumbling and so forth. So why does Jesus use the word grumble here? Because do you remember the reading from last week? Now, it's not in your bulletin, but last week, Jesus is talking about this feeding of the 5,000 miracle. And you remember the people come to him and they say, hey, what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Remember, remember when, that from last week? And you remember what the point was? The people were like, hey, you, maybe you would make a good new Moses. We need somebody to kill the Egyptians and get us out of here. Not the Egyptians anymore. We need somebody to kill the Romans. We need a new Moses. Maybe you should apply for the job. Like, hey, do, do something like, hey, you know, if you can make bread come down from heaven, like, we'll, 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 we'll go with you. We'll hire you as the new Moses. We are the people of God. We are on this journey to the promised land. And we need, we need somebody to help us out here. Maybe, maybe you're the dude. You, you should apply. Send in your resume. And when Jesus says this in our text here in verse 43, when he says, don't grumble among yourselves, do you see what he's saying? He's saying, you guys actually have the story backwards. You think that you're God's people and you want to sign up some prophet to help you get what you want, kill the Romans. But you know who you are? You're actually the people who got left behind in the wilderness. You're the grumblers. You're the people that Moses said, you don't get to see the promised land. Because you know why? Because you don't believe God. You are on the outside looking in. You think, that you, need, you think that you want to hire me to help you get what you want. But it's actually the other way around. You better come and you better submit to me. Because I'm the real deal. I'm not no new Moses. I'm actually the bread that comes down from heaven. And unless you eat of my flesh, you'll die. Look, these people, you, these people that you think you are, they died in the wilderness. If you want to live forever, you've got to follow me. You have to give up your way of being Israel. Forget the revolution. Forget the Romans. Forget hating Herod. 
Forget washing your hands like crazy because you think it's going to make God happy with you. Follow me. Trust me for my way, my way of being Israel. And that's what, that's what this text is saying to us this morning too. Forget your, forget your way of being American. Forget your way of being the good dad. Forget your way of being a funny friend. Forget your way of being a solid citizen. Forget your way of being human. Stop trying to co-opt me. Stop saying, hey, Jesus, you could help me be a better dad. You would help, you would help our political party win. Come on to our side. You can work for us. I don't work for anybody, he says. I'm the actual capital B bread. Give up your way, be, way of being human and trust me for my way of being human. Stand with me and let's pray and we'll have communion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being the God who feeds us. Thank you for being the God who gives us real bread, who gives us naps, who takes care of us when we're tired and when we're hungry. Thank you for being the God who gives us all the good gifts you've given us, our friends and our family and our churches and the money you've given us and the, uh, um, the cars that you've given us and the hobbies you've given us. Thank you most of all, Father, for the way those things point to the real bread, the capital B bread, your son Jesus. Fill us up on him, Father. Like, Give us your son in spades. We need Jesus so badly. We're so tempted to wander around in the wilderness trying to figure out how to get out of here and trying to co-op new Moseses to take us to the promised land. God, feed us with the bread from heaven. Feed us with your son Jesus. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray that you be with all of our ministries here at St. James, all the ministries of all the Christian churches here in Edwardsville and Glen Carbon. May we see your kingdom grow. Leaps and bounds for your honor and glory. But can we pray this morning, we'd all like to pray for the ministries that you've entrusted to us here at St. James, for the Mercy Ministries at Glen Carbon Elementary School, for the Mercy Ministries at, um, uh, down at the, uh, in Granite City and at Fairmount City, for the uh, pro-life ministries that Pam has talked to us about this morning, and for the youth group, and for the Bible studies, and for um, uh, the music, and for anything else that is going on here, especially the community groups, Father. Like, may these bring honor and glory to you. May we see you increasing your kingdom footprint here in Edwardsville and Glen Carbon. Lord, in your mercy. We want to, uh, again, celebrate and affirm a God that you, are the, that you sent your Son to die and rise from the dead so that you would raise our bodies from the dead. And we pray this morning that you would give that resurrection comfort and hope to uh, the family of Peggy Hauser, uh, Lena Joseph's uh, mother who passed away this past week, and uh, take care of Lena and her family and comfort them in the memory that their mom, that Peggy was um, a believer and is now safe in your arms and is waiting for her body to be raised and fixed on the last day. I also pray that you be with the family of Skylar Botkin, who was um, Sandy's first uh, foster child who passed away last night in a car wreck, and that you would bless that family and point them to you. May Sandy and may all the believers that they come in contact with, may they be a loving and gracious and self-sacrificial pointer to the only hope that any of us can have in the face of our impending deaths, which is the reality of your son's resurrection. God, make that real. Make that real in that family's life. Make that real in our life. May we be resurrection, new creation people. Lord, in your mercy. We pray these things because you've united us to your son, Jesus. And now he calls us his uh, sisters and brothers and brings us into your throne room, Father, as your daughters and sons. And so we climb up onto your lap and ask these requests with boldness. 
knowing that you hear them and you'll graciously answer them according to your perfect, loving, sovereign will. We pray these in the name of our brother Jesus. Amen. If you can, confess our faith with me with the words of the Nicene Creed that's in our bulletin. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. And the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and He will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name the prayer that He taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom in the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ on the night when He was betrayed took bread. When He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to His disciples and said, Take, eat. This is My body given to you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, He also took the cup after supper and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in My blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Please stand. Now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Lord bless you and keep you. Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Hey, one quick announcement. Uh, Sandy Hall is meeting with anybody who's interested in helping out with the Mercy Ministry to the Glen Carbon Elementary School. There's families there who really, really need our help. She's going to have a meeting right after we're done here. If you want to follow up with her, if you want to participate in that meeting, that would be great. All right, Jesus meets us in Christian community. That's a biblical fact, 1 Corinthians 12. Look around, find people to make relationship with. It's one of the ways that we experience the power of the Holy Spirit. Go in peace.